No, no, no. You can do much better than that. Today, I, I wish I could say that I have a special Mother's Day message. I don't, but I do. Let me explain. Uh, we are continuing on with our series uh, out of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is all about relationships. So in a very real way, what we're going to talk about today has everything to do with Mother's Day and, and just relationships as a whole. So we're going to focus in today in Matthew chapter 5. Would you please take your Bibles with me this morning and join me in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. We are talking about the good life. The good life is a life of following Jesus in loving obedience and doing good out of a heart that is becoming good in him. And today, for the very first time, we actually start to get into the meat of Jesus's message. Today, we are going to finally uh, get into the very body of the message and what he really is trying to hit home to us about. Now, to set just a little bit of context before we jump in, Jesus is now going to instruct us or give us instruction on how to be salt and light. How to be salt and light in the lives and relationships of those who are lost and defeated so that they too can become followers of Jesus Christ by observing the unique difference Jesus Christ makes in our lives and thus wanting to know the one who has done that remarkable work in us. So today, Jesus is going to clarify what it means to be salt and light. And in doing so, he's going to draw some very sharp contrasts between what should be true of the hearts and lives of his followers and what is actually true within the greater culture in which we live. So today, we are going to be considering together the good life. The good life is a growing life of peace, becoming free from anger and contempt. So with your Bibles open, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, Jesus says these words. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone who insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will actually be liable to the hell of fire. So, in light of that, so, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, you need to leave your gift there before going to the altar, and you need to go and first be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift to God. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Oh my, oh my. After reading those words, we need to pray together. Would you please bow your heads with me as we uh, go into God's presence corporately asking for understanding. 
Father, today uh, we want to thank you uh, for the words of Jesus. They have much to say to us today. And that I pray, Father, is that the Holy Spirit uh, would be able to take the word of God and clarify it in our hearts and in our minds and challenge us to be the people of God, the kind that are salt and in lives that are unpalatable, that we would be light in lives that are just covered with the darkness of sin, that you would make us the kind of people that can bring glory to the Father in heaven as people turn from their lives and find life in Christ. This is all part of that, Father. Help us to see that, I pray today. In Jesus' wonderful name, Father. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen. So what Jesus is doing here in, in this portion of Scripture is something that he actually does six different times in the remainder of chapter 5. And Jesus is setting up this, this contrast, this sharp contrast. And he will be using this, you have heard that it was said, a contrast between what was commonly understood and accepted within the culture of the day. And then he's going to contrast it with what the real intent of God was. And so he's going to say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He does it here, and he will do it six times total in chapter 5. But today, we're going to focus in. Now, what Jesus has to say here is not really hard to get, okay? Uh, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on just trying to make sense of it all, because it's not really that hard to get. The hard part is actually applying what he's talking about. So we'll spend a little bit more time, hopefully, on that side of things. So let's begin by considering the command. The command is the common understanding in the culture of Jesus' day. And uh, so Jesus said this to the people on that uh, hillside in that day. He said this, You have heard that it was said of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So Jesus is making a reference to one of the big ten, the ten commandments. The ten commandments were written with a finger of God on a tablet of stone. This comes straight from the heart of God. And he said this, Commandment number six is, you shall not murder. How many think that's a good commandment to have? Yeah, you shall not murder. I, I think most of us would say, you know, hey, I agree with that. I think murder's like a bad thing. And so true, in that day, they agreed that murder was a bad thing. It was something against God. It was something that God did not want to happen. But the way it was interpreted in that day by the religious leaders and the Pharisees and those who interpreted the law, it meant this. You can feel any way you want about another person. You can say anything you want about another person. You can feel utter contempt for people and tell them that just so long as you don't kill them. You see, in their minds, they were obeying the letter of the law. I didn't kill them. I didn't kill them, but they could harbor in terrible bitterness. They could exalt themselves over other people. They could show huge contempt for whole classes of people. And in their minds, I'm good with God because I didn't kill them. And so Jesus is challenging this whole thinking. Indeed, the letter of the law is thou shalt not Kill, murder, you shall not murder. That is the letter of the law. Now let me show you the spirit of the law. 
Jesus actually goes on from this command to clarify exactly what God's original intent is in giving that command. He says, but now I want you to understand that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, and the uh, word here is raka in some of your translations, will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, uh, notice Jesus Christ takes it from merely the act, and he brings it back into the heart. He takes it from merely not, not killing somebody, which I think we all think is good. You know, do not kill somebody. Okay, I didn't kill them. But now he takes it back into the attitude. He takes it back into the heart. He's taking it back to the root of who we are. What is your heart's intent towards this person? Now, let me show you what he says. I'll kind of unpack this just a little bit, and then I, I'll tell you why this is so important. But I say to you that what? How many? Uh, who's he talking to? Okay. Are you part of everyone? Okay. But I say to you that everyone who is angry, interesting word. Uh, in the original language, it is the word orge, uh, which has this idea of a boiling, simmering anger. In the Hebrew way of thinking, anger began in the belly. And so you would be sick about something. You would be upset about something, and you would allow it to simmer and make your stomach sour. You know that feeling, don't you? You know, when somebody's got you so angry and upset, you feel it building? And so he's saying um, those who get angry, it usually starts in the gut, and then in the Hebrew mindset, it makes its way up to the neck. This is not acid reflux, okay? It's not what he's talking about. So it makes its way up to the neck, and people's veins start to bulge just a little bit on their neck. Do you know what I'm talking about? And in the mindset of the Hebrews, it moved from the neck into the head, and it went down the nose. So the nostrils began to flare. Do you know what I'm talking about here? It's like... You're seething. You're boiling. You're angry. It's growing and it's about to explode. You know, the interesting thing is, in the Older Testament, when it would say that God is slow to anger, it literally means that God has a very long nose. It takes a long time for the anger to get down to the nostrils where they start to flare. God is very, very gracious and patient. But there comes a time when those nostrils begin to flare. And when that happens, you're sure it's about to boil over. And so that's what he says here. It starts, you start to get really angry, and it's starting to grow and grow and grow. Notice, it says, with his brother. Now, the word brother here is a, more of a generic word. He's not talking about a brother in Christ sister in Christ. He's not even talking about an ethnic group, per se, the Jews. But this is really anybody who is a fellow bearer of the image of God, okay? So he's actually broadening this. So he's using very large scope terms that everyone who has this boiling, boiling, uh, growing uh, anger, and they has it with their brother, they will be liable to judgment, just like those who murder do. You shall not murder, for whoever murders will be what? Libel. And everybody who's angry with his brother will be libel. And then when it spills over, it spills over with an insult. Raka! Raka! 
which is Aramaic for you're stupid, you empty head. So what we're doing is we're showing contempt for somebody's intelligence, okay? So he goes from there, and they say this is actually libeled of the council. The council there is the uh, Jewish ruling council that would have been in Israel in those days. It was called the Sanhedrin. And so when you actually bust out to the point of anger where you're saying, Raka, there's a good chance that somebody could sue you for libel. And so he goes on to say this, and whoever says what? Oh, careful. I almost got you in trouble there. You see, it's one thing to have contempt for somebody's intellect. Now we're moving to their character. And when you say you are nothing but a despisable fool, what does he say? You are liable to... What I want you to see Jesus is saying is this. Jesus is exposing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. What he is doing is he's helping them to understand that a relationship with the living God is not about checking off the, the letter of the law. I didn't murder anybody, God. We're good, right? He's moving it down to the level of the heart and he is saying, unless you have experienced a transformation of your heart in how you actually view and treat other people, you aren't good with God. There's something desperately wrong if you can just harbor these types of thoughts and actions and, and words towards other people. He's talking about showing contempt, deep, deep contempt. And where he makes this very clear, Jesus does, and he really kind of exposes it, is in a story found in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, it says this. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. So Jesus has set two very different peoples there. A Pharisee was a religious leader. He was considered to be very holy. A tax collector was considered to be a scoundrel because they would often skim to make their own extra money. And so they were considered evil people. And so the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, oh, mighty God, I thank you that I am not like other people because other people are extortionists and they are unjust and they are adulterers or even like this tax collector. See, Lord, I am so much better than them because I fast twice a week. I give the tithes of all that I get. Jesus now brings the contrast. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but rather he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus now summarizes the story with these words. I tell you, this man, who went, uh, this man went down to his house justified. That's right with God rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now let me get to the crux of the matter here. Jesus was taking the fulfillment of the letter of the law, and he was bringing it back to an issue in our hearts. And what Jesus is saying is this. If you have experienced the grace of God in your life to have received forgiveness of your sins, knowing that you are unworthy and that there was nothing you could do to earn such a good favor of God on your life. If you have been the recipient of God's grace, as a result, you will be gracious with others. 
you will not run other people down. You will not mark off a group of people and call them stupid and morally foolish. You will not act like that because you have received the grace of God and the grace of God changes your heart understanding that that's you without the grace of God. And who am I to condemn someone else? Not even Christ came into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so we have this horrible statement here where Jesus is just pushing it down on them, and they're all kind of taking a deep breath. This is not to characterize the people of God. We are not those who show contempt for other people. We are not those who run other people down with our words. We are not those who margin off a group of people and say that they are less than us. Because the moment you exalt yourself and look down on somebody else, you don't understand grace. You are living the moralistic standard of our world. Grace doesn't look down on others. It serves others. In fact, this is such a powerful truth that even John, the one whom Jesus loved, one of his closest disciples in his writing in 1 John, said this. Everyone who hates his brother is a what? Yeah, so there we go. You see, John is actually quoting Jesus here. You're going to discover that virtually everything Jesus says, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, you will find reiterated in the teachings of Paul, Peter, James, and John. Why? Because they were his disciples, and he gave them the mandate in Matthew chapter 28 that they were to go and make disciples, and part of that was that they would teach obedience to everything Christ commanded. Christ is commanding this, and so you will find it reiterated in these other writers. And so he reiterates it here. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has what? Abiding in him. Wow. Whoa. Whoa. My, oh, my. My, oh, my. To look down on someone else is to believe that you are better than they are. And that is very likely a clear indication that you may not have understood the grace of God in your life. Or if you have, you need to grow in that grace to understand how impactful that grace is meant to be on you. You may never have been in a fist fight. But according to Jesus' words here, you could be a serial murderer. You may be a model law-abiding citizen and yet be guilty as someone on death row. Anger, smoldering, brooding, simmering anger, bitterness, and contempt are worthy of hell, is what he is saying here. Let that soak in for a second. Let that sink in for a second. These words are meant to have huge impact on us. And what they're supposed to say is, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's supposed to make us want to flee to God and ask for heart surgery. It's supposed to make us say, Oh Jesus, I wrap my arms around you, 
forgive me. Now change my heart and make me into the kind of a person who can live out what you're saying. These words of Jesus are harsh words, but they're meant to drive us to Jesus, to find forgiveness, to find the grace, to realize these truths in our lives. That's what he's doing here. That's what he's saying here. He's not trying to soft pedal anything. He's trying to challenge us to get closer to him, to experience the grace of God in a much deeper, much more real way in our lives. Awesome. How many are good right now? <sighs> you see, it's not enough for the child of God, the follower of Jesus, not to not murder. But actually, we are called to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse us, and to pray for those who mistreat us. You see, it's not just enough not to murder someone. We're actually called to love people. We're called to love God. We're called to love our families. We're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're even called to love our enemies. So what Jesus is saying is just obeying the standard of the law will never get you where I want you to go. You need a heart operation. You need heart surgery. You need to come to me and find a different way of life. You see, if we're ever going to be different than everyone else and be salt in light, we need to have a radical transformation of our hearts. And it's going to require a different view of people and maybe even a restructuring of our present value systems. Now, I'm going to move into application. And I want to do it on two levels. I want to do personal application. The relationships you presently have in your life, I want to talk about those. And then in light of the season that we are in, I not only want to talk about showing contempt in relationships, but I actually want to talk about showing contempt in the political realm. So hang on. I hope you hear the first part. <laughs> because it's important. It's important. And so the challenge to begin with is what about our personal relationships? You know, we're talking like spousal relationships, parent to child, those who are very near and close to us. If we can't get that right, then we're never going to love our neighbor or our enemies. And so in a very real way, we need to understand that there needs to be something that radically changes in our hearts, in the relationship we have with those who are closest to us. So if you are taking notes... I want to encourage you to simply write this down personally, personally. If we're going to be salt and light, we need to begin personally. We need to begin by loving God more than we love ourselves. By loving God more than we love ourselves. And everybody goes like this. Seems reasonable. I mean, that, that is kind of what the Bible says, right? So let me reintroduce a character that I showed you a few weeks back. Uh, this is you. You don't look like you ate breakfast here today, for you would be much fuller than that. But this is representative of us. And so when I talk about, yeah, we are to love God more than ourselves, you know, intellectually, we kind of think, yeah, yeah, I kind of get that. You know, on an intellectual basis, uh, I get it. We are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And so when I say something like that, you go, yeah, yeah, right? 
So do this. Do this if you, if you think intellectually that's true. That's what God calls us to do, to love God more than ourselves. So that is the right answer. Give yourself 10 points. Right answer. Now, uh, let's go just a little below the surface in our lives, and let's consider a little bit more of our heart. Let's consider a little bit more of just below the surface here. You see, intellectually, we can agree with this. We can say, yes, Pastor Bill, awesome, I get that. Well, let's talk a little bit about our below, uh, our intellectual level. Let's talk a little bit more about our values. Our values are very important in the makeup of who we are, and they will ultimately determine our, our choices that we make and the attitudes that we hold. Uh, values are a person's principle or standards of behavior. It is what one judges as most important in life. And so intellectually, we can go, okay, Pastor Bill, I get it. Intellectually, yes, okay, I'm supposed to love the Lord my God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, and in another place, with all of my strength. Get it. But that's maybe not the real answer in our hearts. And our hearts are deceitful. They can trick us very easily. But the reality often in our hearts uh, is not the issue of, of um, the right answer. The real answer for many of us, most of us, if we're truly honest, is that which dominates our lives, makes up our principles, is our standard of behavior and the judgment by what is most important in life, it is, quite frankly, myself. You see, I really do want what I want when I want it. And I really do know what's best for me. And so in light of that, I am going to make my judgments and my concerns based around what I want. And uh, if you are human here today, there's a good chance that that includes you. This is human nature. It is the desire to have our own way. The only problem with that is it makes us live life just like everybody else does. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, it can even take what is relatively a pleasant life and it can radically change our lives. We can have the same griefs as everyone else. We can have the same messed up relationships as everyone else. We can have the same pains and the same sorrows as everyone else. We can make the same judgments about everything, just like everybody else. There's no difference between us and everybody else if self operates that way. Let's go back to our relationship, shall we? You see, the problem in most of our relationships is myself. Notice what James says here, James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Where, oh where, do these wars and battles between yourselves first start? Is it not precisely in the desires fighting inside your own selves? You see, I want what I want. You want something, and you lack it, so you what? You what? Yeah, you could. I mean, literally you could. I mean, this, this is actually the, the reality behind the wars between nations and, 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 and people who go out and kill and murder to get what they want. But this is also the truth behind relationships and why they fracture so easily. It all comes back to the same thing. It is, I want what I want when I want it. And so you want something, and so because of lack of it, you will kill. And often words, you're stupid. You're worthless. You're a nobody. 
they end up being the very thing that Jesus was talking about. Our words of contempt can kill people. You have an ambition that you cannot satisfy, so you fight to get your way by force. This, dear ones, is why most relationships fracture. It is because we have chosen to put ourselves on the throne of our lives. And so long as self is on that throne, I am going to be selfish in how I handle relationships. You know, it has been my 27-year um, journey, that's right, with my wife, that when I get demanding about what I want, that does not usually go very well. But I have discovered this on the flip side, that when I'm willing to actually dethrone my desires and enthrone the desires of the Lord, which is to serve my wife, I discover in loving and in serving her, I get back far more than I ever would have demanded or wanted from her. That's how that works. That's how that works. And so we're talking about relationships. We're talking about the problem of contempt. We're talking about the problem of murdering people with our words. And so long as we remain self-focused, we will live just like everyone else and, and have exactly the same heartache. So what do we do about it? What do we do about it? How do we, how do we deal with this? Well, we need to begin by humbling ourselves, dethroning ourselves, enthroning Christ and what his word says, and being humbly willing to do it. And then we need to pursue the one that we have offended, and we need to be reconciled to them. This is what Christ is talking about. Let's move forward into what Jesus is saying here. Because not only does he give us a clarification, but he gives us his counsel. This is practical application. He goes on to say this. So, if you offer your gift at the altar, let's say you're in the middle of a worship service, and there you remember that your brother, this could be your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, your daughter, your son, your neighbor, your coworker, any other person made in the image of God. If you remember that this person has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and make your offering. Anybody need to leave? I think some of us do. I really do. Because we know of relationships in our lives right now that are fractured, that we have the ability to reconcile. If we would just get off our high horse, humble ourselves, we would realize something beautiful is starting to happen. God will work. We will be different. And then Jesus moves on to another analogy. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with them to the court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and put you in prison. Truly, I say to you that you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus' point is pretty plain and unmistakable. 
we are to make every effort with no delay to make our relationships with others right before our relationship with God can be right. And we can avoid his chastening uh, in our lives. And so on a very personal level, on a personal level, we need to learn to love the Lord our God more than ourselves if we're going to be salt and light in the lives of those nearest and dearest to us. We need to dethrone self. We need to enthrone Christ. We need to walk with him in loving obedience, doing what he instructs. When that happens, and I have witnessed this over and over again in my own relationship with my wife, and I witnessed it over and over again in some of the relationships that are sitting here today. When you do that, something extraordinary begins to happen. Wives are submitting to their husbands as though to the Lord. Husbands are loving their wives as Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. What was a fractured relationship because I demanded my way now becomes a loving relationship because we're serving one another as God would have us do. Personally speaking, that's where we need to be leaning in order to appreciate, understand, and apply the words that Jesus is giving. So on a personal level, I need to, on a personal level, let me make sure my, my notes here because I'm about to move into territory that I want to be very careful in. Personally, we need to love God more than ourselves. Now culturally, and please listen carefully so I'm not misunderstood and uh, if you want my email address, it is bill.walker at gracewaldorf.org. I will take all emails and I will answer them. Politically, when it comes to showing disdain, when it comes to showing contempt, when it comes to spewing words, that, that are venomous when it comes to this un, unyielding anger and boiling ugliness within our hearts? How do we overcome that? How do we obey what Christ is saying? Well, we need to love others more than we love our country. Let me say that one more time. We need to love others more than we love our country. You see, my concern is that for far too long we have allowed politics and even patriotism to hold a higher place in our lives than Jesus Christ and his kingdom. I see it all over Facebook, all the time. We are quick to condemn people they're different than us. They believe differently than us. They hold a different political persuasion than I do. They, they're so different, and we're quick to condemn them. How many have seen something like that on Facebook? Come on. How many have seen something like that on Facebook? How many have put something like that on Facebook? No more hands. You know, I'm just kidding. You see, we are so caught up with the politics of our nation that the words that Jesus spoke into our lives don't have any effect. Four years ago, four years ago, in the last election cycle, when it was uh, Mitt Romney versus Barack Obama, I was sitting in the house of a man who uh, was at Crossway Fellowship Church doing a Bible study. And we were sitting in his house, and he was very, very passionate 
politically and, and all this stuff. And so our lesson that day just so happened to be these words from the Apostle Paul. And I read them. It says, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for the building up of others as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those uh, who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you have been sealed to the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And I read these verses, and, and knowing this man's passion, I said to him, well, how do you, how do you reconcile what Paul says with the way we behave. And this is what he said. I'm not kidding. He says, well, today, we have the Constitution of the United States. Today, it just so happens that we have a newer, inspired document given to us by God that actually supersedes the Bible. I am not kidding. Now, he actually voiced what many of us act like. But I want you to understand, we in America have been given the right of free speech. It is a right given to us in America. I happen to believe it's a human right. But it is not a right for Christians. It is not a right that Christians have the right to freely exercise. You see, the government says it's okay for me to do many things that I should never do. And just because the government says it's okay for you to murder other people with your words doesn't mean that as a Christ follower, I'm allowed to do that. So while we have this document, and it gives us freedom of speech, you need to understand what the scriptures say. Because that's actually our guiding document as followers of Christ. So what is it the Bible says? Well, let's consider a few. Uh, I read this one, Ephesians 4, 29, but this is the um, amplified version. It says this, Let no foul or polluting language, nor evil word, nor unwholesome or worthless talk, how often? Ever come out of your mouth. But only such speech as is good and beneficial to the spiritual progress of others as is fitting to the occasion, to the need of the occasion, that it may be a blessing and give grace, God's favor, to those who hear it. That's the speech of a believer. You see, our greater concern is not the United States of America. Our greater concern is the eternal destiny of the people around us. Let's continue. Remind the believers, Titus, remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone and must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to how many people? This is the mandate of the believer. This is the guiding document that makes us different than our culture. You see, so long as we just live under the Constitution of the United States as the guiding document for our lives, we will be no different than anyone else. But when we come under the Scriptures as the guiding document of our lives, we become radically different than everybody else. We have liberty in this country 
but do not understand your liberty in this country to trump the liberty that Christ has given you. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty in Christ. Only we are not to use our liberties as an opportunity for our flesh, but through love we are to serve one another. For all of the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's our liberty. That's what we can do. Freely love others. Go for it. Speak healing words into their lives of grace that will show them the need of Jesus Christ. Go for it. Hence, we become radically different than our culture. We become radically different in how we live. We now become salt in the lives of people whose lives have become unpalatable. They can no longer stand them. We become light into people who are walking in darkness. Because we've been touched with grace, we should look upon them with grace and not marginalize groups and condemn them. Our guiding document, again, is not the Constitution of the United States. Our guiding document is the Word of God. Can I get an amen? I hope so. I hope so. Because we've been called to live very different lives, very different lives than other people. Well, then, Pastor Bill, what am I supposed to do? In light of where we are today, in light of the culture, in light of what's happening, how am I supposed to respond? I'm glad you asked. Because it just so happens that the New Testament writers were speaking into a very immoral culture of their day. Perhaps for the first time in American history, we are actually living in New Testament days. So what pertinently they say is very pertinent to our situation today. So once we can get over the fact that this is not our guiding document as believers, but rather this is our guiding document as believers, let's see what we're told to do. Here we go. Oop. These words come from none other than Peter. Notice how Peter tells his people of his day to behave. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Why? Because we're here to help them know Jesus. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your what? Yeah, you remember we are to be salt and we are to be light. And uh, it is by our good works that people will glorify our Father in heaven. And, and so they'll see your good deeds and glorify God when he appears. For the Lord's sake, listen, respect all human authority. Whether it is the king as the head of state or as officials, he has appointed. For the king has been sent them to punish, or has been sent, has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. Now, just before we finish this, who's the king he's talking about? Virtually any authority, but pertinent to his day and age, it was Nero. Are you familiar with Nero? Nero used to use Christians that he dipped in tar to light his, his patio at night. And so they're saying, listen, even though this guy's a savage beast, he's there by God. You ought to respect him. Whoa, whoa, whoa. For the king has been sent to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. Notice, do right. Good deeds, do right. It is God's will. What is God's will? that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, and yet you are God's slaves. Do not use your freedom as an excuse to do evil, but respect everyone. Love your Christian brothers and sisters. Fear God and respect who? Nero? Yeah, Nero. You see, we have a higher agenda than it's just a political agenda. We need to move away from this idea of wrapping the cross with the flag. 
The cross stood for 1,700 years before America was even founded, and it will stand long after America goes the way that most nations go. The cross should never be wrapped with a flag. We are not here for God and country. We are here for Christ and kingdom. There's a very big difference between those concepts. And so they were there for Christ and kingdom's sake. Now, that's just Peter. Okay, Peter, how about Paul? Okay, Paul, he said this, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate even with those who are lowly people. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. In the sight of all, to do, to do good works, do good works. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, this is how we're supposed to behave. If your enemy is hungry, I want you to what? If he's thirsty, for by doing, so doing, doing good, good works, you will heap coals on their head. Do not overcome evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? You see, this is what Christ is calling us to. He's calling us in grace to himself, that we would walk in loving obedience with Jesus Christ, and that we would do good works out of a heart that is becoming good in him. This is the call of Christ. This just got very serious. This is what it means to live out a disciple today. Most of us really wrestle with this. Let me just show you how indoctrinated we are, and then I'll be done. I guess I'm almost done. I'm going to show you a very uh, groups of images. I'm going to give you some images. And off those images, I want you to check your pulse rate, okay? Because you can tell what you value by how you respond. Okay, here we go. How's your pulse? How's your pulse? How's your pulse? How's your pulse? Everything I just showed you are American values. Everything I just showed you have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom of God in the United States of America have very radically different value systems. It's not that you shouldn't care about these things. You should care about these things, but they should always be in subjection to the kingdom. Seek ye first the... and righteousness. That's our priority. Secondarily, these aspects are meant to play a role in our lives, but they are not meant to, and forgive me for this bad pun, trump the kingdom of God. Think about it. Think about it. American values are built around patriotism, nationalism, individualism, uh, materialism, and exceptionalism. Those are not only not kingdom values, most of those are directly in opposition to kingdom values. Somebody has said that the American dream is the kingdom's nightmare. Think about it. Here is what Christ wants us to get passionate about. These are kingdom values. 
because they are eternal souls. It's not just that black lives matter or police lives matter or anybody's lives matter. Lost people matter to God. That's a kingdom value. Another kingdom value is integrity of life. Integrity is doing the right thing even when nobody is watching before our God. Another high, important uh, uh, value in the kingdom of God is not just integrity, but also fidelity. We're actually going to talk about that next week. And not only fidelity, but also compassion, deep-seated compassion for those who are hurting, those who are wounded. It is the willingness to give lavishly of the resources that God has given to us to help those in need. These are kingdom values. Another kingdom value is prayer. Turning to God with a sense of helplessness over all the things we see. Another kingdom value is to pursue God with a hunger. We're actually going to talk about fasting. Is a desire for God. These are kingdom values. And that is, should be our highest value. It was God's. God gave his son's life for that value. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, how can I do less? For God so loved the United States of America, right? He loved the world. You see, what's often in the best interest of the United States of America isn't always in the best interest of the kingdom. I've hit you with a ton of bricks, and I'm probably going to get a whole lot of emails. But I just want you to understand, seek ye first the kingdom of God, its values. By all means, hold these other values, but do not ever let them supersede the word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for these uh, very tough words. May it cast us back upon you in grace. May it cause us to want to just embrace you with our hearts and our lives and say, oh God, forgive me. Oh God, forgive me. And give me a heart like the heart of Christ. Make my heart beat for those who need. Make my heart be a heart of compassion. May I be quick to not judge other people, but rather to see myself as a recipient of grace, and they likewise need grace. Help me, O oh God. Help us, O oh God, to be salt and light in a world that is unpalatable and dark. In Jesus' name. And the people of God said, and on that I have to say, Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> and I'm so sorry. Yeah, you were.